I mean, I dropped out in the fourth grade to run drugs to support my nano. That means you haven't known the triumphs and defeats, the epic highs and lows of high school football. Because here's what I will say. I may not know the highs and lows of Super Bowl football, but I really know the highs and lows of high school football. And isn't that true? Yes. Welcome to uh, Marisa and Olivia's Weird Fantasy. I'm Marisa. And I'm Olivia. And today we will be doing a summary of season one because I truly believe that you shouldn't have to watch every episode of Riverdale in order to join in the intellectual discussion surrounding this show. I agree wholeheartedly. I also think to better understand the small minutiae that makes up the episodes, it's important to have a general concept of what happens in the seasons. Yeah. So we're going to be doing a little season one recap. And then the the thought is that we're going to do one for every season so that we can get into the analysis with appropriate background. At first, we thought we could do one episode covering all six <laughs> seasons. We spent one minute discussing season one and realized so much happens in not only season one, but more happens every yes. season. Riverdale is, at its core, a soap opera. And I would say, to that extent, it is also the most television you can watch. <laughs> yeah. Just in terms of, I feel like a big genre, again, of the Riverdale is bad, people will say every plot that happens in one episode, and every single one will be the most insane thing you've ever mm -hmm. heard. And again, that's what makes Riverdale good. I don't want to have to focus just on someone's dad being in prison or an alcoholism plotline. Like, I need those things to happen at the same time. Season one is definitely the most straightforward season, mm -hmm. but also, upon rewatching, I realized it lays so much groundwork that I forgot about. I also feel like in season one, you have this shift that I would argue happens episode 10 of season one where the show goes from a level of earnestness and and that it kind gives of a, a typical high school show like it goes from most of the central tensions and conflicts being like people's relationships with each other and like already in season 1 you have this murder and so you know that's not as simple as just high school drama but like the shift that is happening at the end of season one and beginning with season two is moving from the important part being kind of their interactions and plausible things that could exist within a high school and into like a world where there's so many larger conspiracies and you're really getting into the history of the town, interaction with previous generations, I was gonna say, I feel like a reason to me why episode 10 is so crucial to that switch is partially because of how the parents get involved. As you're saying, the beginning of season one really focuses on the kids. And then you soon realize that Riverdale kind of deals in this politics of kind of saying that family is evil and like yes. also that you can't escape your family. Yes. And so every episode of Riverdale then becomes about how Every family has lived in Riverdale the entire time it's existed, and every family member has had the exact same job, and they just are, re like, repeating these cycles of trauma over and over and over again. Yeah, I almost wonder if the biggest reveal 
of Riverdale, like the biggest final reveal, could just be that there is some magical force that is keeping people locked into their archetypes, their family archetypes. Let's start at the beginning. So, season one opens in a clear copy of Twin Peaks. It's funny that it does that, because Roberto Aguirre Sacasa was once quoted saying, what would a coming-of-age story be like if David Lynch made it, or Stephen King wrote it? Uh, David Lynch did make it, and <laughs> and RAS just decides that he needs to just work with that framework. I am like, has RAS heard of it? I know he's emulating Twin Peaks, but has he heard of Twin Peaks? Has he watched it? Like, I'm not positive that he watched it. He watched a trailer, and then he had Alice tell him what happened. Yeah, if you don't already know, the actress who plays Betty's mom in Riverdale is the actress who played Shelley in Twin Peaks, and she's very recognizable. And so you already have this, like, little allusion to kind of the legacy of teen drama television. On that note, all of the parents are played by actors and actresses who were big in the 90s on teen shows, which again feels like that element of you are forced to repeat your history. Yeah. So Betty's mother, who is named Alice Cooper, is on Twin Peaks. Jughead's father was Skeet Ulrich, who played the bad boyfriend in every 90s film. Archie's parents, one is Molly Ringwald, of Molly Ringwald fame. Of every high school movie ever fame. And Archie's father is Luke Perry, Mm -hmm. who is in Beverly Hills 90210. (laughs) Veronica's parents were also in teen shows. So, like, they're very consistent with the casting of the parents as 90s teen superstars. Which I also feel like is interesting, uh, especially today, because Yellow Jackets has gotten mm-hmm. so much love, like, acknowledgement yeah. of how cool that casting is. Yeah. And I'm like, Riverdale did it first. But it does, it like, having all of those people specifically be the parents, because they could not be the parents. Like, they could be other towns people. There are people in Riverdale, believe it or not, who aren't directly related to our four favorite characters. It immediately tells you, like, Riverdale is just, like, the fucked up kid of all these shows. It is the descendant. It's kind of, to me, feels like, you know, all these shows that were kind of earnest in their drama and in, in like, the mysteries that they brought into the show, they were held with a lot of weight. Like, in Twin Peaks, things get serious and, like, yeah, they show you how scary it is. But, like, it feels like now you're saying Riverdale is the, like, absurdist child of all these shows that kind of did everything there was to be done with uh, normal TV, which is why now we need this. And again, I feel like casting those actors is very intentional in that it's acknowledging the references, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is this crucial thing that people miss about Riverdale. Another thing is... Starting in season one, every episode title is kind of a classic movie. And it's a real mix of, like, high film and low film. Like, again, it's just... Riverdale is obsessed with media. And again, when I say it's the most TV show, it's because it's trying to be everything. They love every single form of media, and they're so mad that they can't be every single form of media. But now we should actually start talking about what happens. So I think the, the most important framing device of season one is that Jason is murdered. 
And Jason is Cheryl Blossom, who's uh, from the Blossom family, very rich, old money family in Riverdale. Been there, you know, founded the town, we later learn. Her twin brother. And they're these red-headed twins that wear all white, like the twins in The Secret History, which you'll be like, okay, Marisa, that's a reach. You're just saying all the things everything reminds you of. No. Season four, there's a secret history plotline parody almost. So we'll get to that when we get to it. But if you see something that reminds you of something else, you're not crazy because I don't know how, but the creators of Riverdale are sitting in like the Library of Alexandria of media and just pulling things off the shelf and throwing them into the script. No, totally. And I also feel like we've talked about Cheryl a bit in that Cheryl is this weird character. In in season two, she officially comes out as a lesbian. It turns out she's been to conversion camp. Like, it's a, it's a very weirdly handled plotline. But in season one, Cheryl is straight. They are doing twin zest. Yeah, much like Secret History. Cheryl and Jason have super weird vibes from the first moment you see them. There's, like, they just, like, look at each other longingly. It's strange. Well, and the show begins with you finding out that Jason has been murdered, and you think he's drowned in the lake. Cheryl is distraught, and there were some people who were at Sweetwater River the morning it happened. So it seems like it's going to be a pretty straightforward little mystery. And then twists and turns. So two of the people who were there are Archie Andrews and his teacher, Miss Grundy, who are having an illicit affair. So Miss Grundy, that is a big plot. It also kind of immediately ruins Archie's boy next door good vibes because he's having this illicit affair. Yeah. He's an object of lust. Betty, his next door neighbor, is in love with him. That is all kind of quickly resolved after a few episodes. Which is, you know, they set up the classic Betty, Archie, Veronica love triangle when Veronica comes to Riverdale in the first episode. And they set it up, you think they're gonna do that, they get bored of it immediately. And so does the audience, to be fair. I didn't need to watch them fight over Archie for more than an episode or two, but... I really respect that they said the meat of what the comics are, we're not doing that. They really only engaged with it for two seconds. Other important things that happen in season one are Betty and Jughead become partners, both as kind of research detectives working for the newspaper, and they start dating romantically. That's kind of a big plot. That was also a big change from the comics, as Jughead and Betty were never romantically involved. And Jughead was, like, very asexual in the comics. But, you know, it's a TV show. Sex sells, famously. And I love Jughead. As a Jughead girl, he is my boy. He's homeless for the beginning of the season. Yeah, which... Just the wealth discrepancy in Riverdale, and even just within our main four characters, is astounding. And, like, you have Veronica, who's introduced as this rich girl. Her dad's in jail for some white-collar, money-laundering, shady stuff that they never really exactly tell you what it is. And honestly, I'm glad they don't, because I don't understand that anyway. But her dad's in jail, and it's interesting how they set it up, because they kind of make you do the, like, single mother struggling sympathy with Hermione, who's her mom. And they make Hermione, like, get a job at the diner, as if there's any way they don't have money to support themselves week by week. Like, they're living in their mansion that they will be living in the rest of 
the show. And they have a butler. And they're wearing all their expensive clothes. And you're telling me she has to work at Pops to make ends meet? One, fire your butler. I don't think you need him to bring you your mail. That's all he seems to do, is bring them mail. Two, I mean, just post some of your clothes on Depop. Sucker <laughs> <laughs> pearl necklace. Yeah. And three, in, like, the first episode, we see that Hiram is, like, give, sending them money from jail. Betty and Archie are both set up as very middle class. They live next door to each other. Both of Betty's parents are journalists. They work at the newspaper, and they own the newspaper. Archie's dad owns his construction company that he's worked at. His father owned it before him. The goal is that Archie will own it. Archie is kind of having conflicting feelings this season. He's trying to do music. He cannot sing. He's also trying to play football. So it's a classic a, high school musical. It really is a classic high school musical, and they just commit to it. And they say no one has done this before. Yeah, and I really am not convinced that everyone would give a single shit if a football player decided to write little songs in his notebooks. I don't understand why he acts... I mean, it feels like a metaphor for his gayness, and I guess we'll unpack that at a later date. It does feel like a metaphor, though, because he truly no one in his life cares very much, but he cares so much. And he tries to keep it a secret in the maybe the first or second episode is like lying to his dad and his football coach about where he is while he's writing his little songs, and neither of them would have been mad if he didn't lie. But here's what I will say is his love of music or his his practice springs from his relationship with Miss Grundy, who is the music teacher. We know this because every single establishing shot of her, she's about to start playing the cello. She never, she's always holding the bow, like she's threatening to start playing the cello at any moment, but then, you know, someone bursts into the music room. Anyway, it makes his music, his love of music, it associates it with this relationship he can't tell anyone about and which feels shameful to him. And that's my psychoanalysis of why Archie thinks that anyone would give a single shit that he liked playing the guitar. And ultimately people only appreciate him for it. Like everyone compliments him on it and thinks yeah. he's incredible, which is funny because he's not. Yeah. Guys, can't we just liberate ourselves from the tired dichotomy of jock artist? Can't we in this post-James Franco world be all things at once. But so, so truly the thing about season one is it's setting up a lot of the important dynamics for the rest of the show, but in terms of like episode to episode plot, not that much happens just because the, the big arc of the season is truly Jason's been murdered who killed Jason. But the most important thing that happens in the season is the interpersonal dynamics that are set yeah. up. And they also use the Jason thing to introduce other characters. It's not just the Jason thing, like, it is the corruption of the whole town. But, like, through this, you know, you do meet Jughead's dad, who's, a, at this point, an abusive drunk. He's, you know, the worst father imaginable, which, having watched the series to its bitter mid-season six break, which, you know, having watched that far now, I can't... I can't even, like, totally resonate with the FP they portray on screen, where they're like, he's a piece of shit, he doesn't care about Jughead, because he cares so much about Jughead for the rest of the show, that I'm, I'm kind of like, like, where was that turnaround? I'm trying to, I guess it's in season two, but I'm trying to remember, like, 
when he becomes a good dad. Well, and I think, again, cycles of trauma, which Riverdale is obsessed with, Mm -hmm. FP's backstory is that his father was an abusive drunk that left him, who was also an incredible writer and did all these things. So they're they're constantly in this weird space of this was the best person that ever existed and an abusive, terrible person. And I do think they navigate abuse in a really interesting way where everyone is constantly forgiven and it's always remembered. Which also brings us to a weird little arc they have the second episode, I think, or third, where Veronica and Betty take it upon themselves to expose this football player who's like been keeping a conquest, he calls it like the conquest book, where, you know, guys write down the girls they hooked up with and, like, rate them. It starts because Veronica goes on a date with him, and then, like, he tells everyone that she let him give her a sticky maple, which we can leave to the audience's imagination what that Riverdale means. As Riverdale does. The thing about the beginning of Riverdale also is it feels very Law & Order SVU ripped from the headlines, where they're like, okay, sexual harassment in mm-hmm. high school. Let's think about that. I will say, what they actually do is physically threaten and kind of sexually violate uh, the man back, which is, which is, you know, not exactly the best way to deal with this situation. And in this plotline where Veronica and Betty lure Chuck, who's the guy, to Ethel's house, you know, they basically, they roofie him. They're in a hot tub. He's like, oh, it's too hot in here. And then all of a sudden, you get the reveal. Betty, she walks out in a black wig, which also, Betty's psychosexual obsession with Veronica. So that's one thing. She walks out in a black wig and, like, lingerie, right? And Mm -hmm. heels. And it's very not Betty's look. Like, Betty is blonde and pastels. And she walks out. Veronica bites her lip. Veronica's psychosexual obsession with Betty. And then Betty, like, puts her heel on Chuck's head. Betty attempts to drown Chuck and is pouring maple syrup on him and is yelling at him about her sister. Someone who has been gone, who was Jason's girlfriend. It's a very wild scene and, again, immediately corrupting the idea of Betty as a good girl. The color politics of good and bad in Riverdale are very funny because Betty, when she is Mm -hmm. doing dark Betty, as it gets called, is she'll put on her black wig and then she'll go do kind of like evil, often sexual things. Whereas when Veronica is doing kind of good girl things, she'll wear a blonde wig. And it's, I mean, and I do think that is just kind of, like, playing with the Betty Veronica, like, what each of them represents. And it's not even that when Veronica's doing good girl things. It's when she's, like, using the appearance of a good girl to get people to give her information or something. One thing I do want to talk about with that scene with Chuck is, you know, she's, like, drowning him and yelling at him. say you're sorry for what you did to Polly and he's like I have no idea what you're talking about Polly is Betty's older sister and Polly used to date Jason and at this point in the show we've never met Polly she's somewhere she's elsewhere later we'll find out it's Sisters of Quiet Mercy which is apparently a home for wayward anyone it's like an adoption center 
a conversion camp, a psych ward, anything. It It's whatever you want it to be. But she's pressing Chuck's head into the hot tub water, pouring syrup on him, and going, oh, say you're sorry for ruining me. And, like, say you're sorry for ruining me, Jason. And it's very strange. And she just, like, channels Polly. Rivendell's relationship with teen sex is wild because you have scenes like this later in the series polly will become a sex worker and is very sex worker coded it's something they talk about it's something that she is judged for but there is this sense that polly has been ruined by sex Mm -hmm. in a way that the other characters don't have to deal with and again it's this weird combination of like conservative values but also like family is the ultimate sin because polly you discover in the season, this is kind of another important arc to the season, is pregnant with Jason's child. She ends up having twins that are both redheads. And one of the big reveals of the season that comes around the end is the reveal that Betty is Cheryl's cousin, transitive property. Jason is also Polly's cousin. And so now you've got even more twincest going on with these little twin incest babies. Which is weird, like, they didn't have to do that. Like, as I said, I feel like the plot of season one is genuinely not crucial to the rest Mm -hmm. of the series. It is these interpersonal relationships, which are Cheryl and Betty becoming cousins kind of changes their dynamic. Cheryl is brought into the fold as more of a main character instead Mm -hmm. of just the mean bee she's been cast as. She gains this complexity of, you find out, she was kind of in on Jason's plan. And Jason's plan was to run away with Polly. Um, but when they find his body, he's been shot. And you don't know who did it, what happened. At some point in this season, they find his car with all these drugs in it. And they find his little football jacket with a flash drive in the pocket. And so there's all these, like, little clues. And different characters, it seems like every character is accused of murdering him at some point. FP, at one point, like, gets arrested because he's taking the fall for Jughead. But they do make it look like FP killed Jason, which kind of is like, why are these two characters even interacting? And what you find out is that FP helped on the murder scene. Like, he Mm -hmm. was paid to help mop up the blood and dispose of Jason's body, but the actual person who killed Jason is his father, Clifford Blossom, who, when the police come for him, has already killed himself. And this is on video. Again, so these are the really crucial dynamics to season one, which are fathers killing their children. The reason that he kills Jason is because Jason finds out that Clifford, who's, you know the old money patriarch of Riverdale, finds out that he has been dealing drugs or somehow contributing to the drug dealing issues that apparently are plaguing Riverdale. And I will say one little hint they do that's kind of funny that Clifford isn't what he seems is he wears a wig because he's not a redhead, but the Blossoms are all redheads. And so he wears a redheaded wig And then kind of the reveal is like, oh, he's not who we thought he was. We thought he was just the owner of this extremely lucrative maple syrup business. But apparently, you know, that's not the only sweet thing he's given people. Unsurprisingly, maple syrup is not enough to make you insanely wealthy in the town of Riverdale. Although it is 
it, to some extent, but they also, he was running a huge drug trade. This is, again, getting at this idea that Riverdale has this underbelly that no one can see, especially in season one where you're supposed to kind of still believe Riverdale has been a good town and is only now being corrupted. And what all of this shifts to show you is that no, Riverdale was a town born in blood. As they so often say. As they love to say. But the idea is that Riverdale has kind of been existing off of this drug trade for a very long time, something they really get into in season two. Yeah, so in season one, kind of what they're setting you up with is they wrap up the Jason murder thing. They're like, we're done with having to pretend to care about who killed Jason. It was just Clifford. It's kind of a letdown because Clifford has not been relevant until this point. So he's like introduced... I mean, you've kind of seen him, heard about him, whatever. You find out he kills Jason, but he's already dead. He's, you know, they find him and he's hung himself. And it's just kind of crazy because, like, I do feel like part of what they're really trying to communicate with you where you end up at the end of season one is, you know, Betty and Jughead are together. Archie and Veronica are kind of together. Jason, we don't care about him anymore. Cheryl's going a little crazy. She tries to kill herself by jumping into a frozen lake, and then Archie, like, punches her out of the lake. Cheryl also is very quickly redeemed by the end of the season, so throughout the entire season, you're supposed to feel a little bad for her, but again, you're kind of supposed to have this idea that maybe she was being a little incestuous with her sibling, maybe she killed him, she confesses to his murder at one point as a bit because the show's confusing. Yeah. But then by the end of the season, she's this pitiful thing, and you're supposed to feel very, very bad for her, and Archie saves her, and it's this kind of beautiful redemption. And she burns down her family home with her mother in it, which is also fun. Yeah, the mother survives. Okay, and where they leave you at the end of season one is the ultimate cliffhanger. No, it's not. The two things to me that are so crucial about the end of season one are mm -hmm. Jughead and Betty are about to have sex. Yes. That is the full implication of what is going on. There's like fun music playing. This show has up to this point been very pro showing like almost sex but it's very clear that characters haven't had sex yet mm -hmm. except for Archie and Miss Grundy which was kind of this big like problematic yeah. sex like sex again is cast as this very like impure immoral yeah. thing especially in season one when the main four aren't having sex even though they are in different relationships at that point in time and you know like they show them making out they try to get you to think that archie and veronica are a hot couple no chemistry but even when when veronica and archie first get together they show them kissing and then they cut to them sleeping in separate beds so you are very much meant to understand that these kids are not having sex that there's still some quote-unquote purity like there is yeah. a level of purity that the R Riverdale relationships are operating under. That is about to be broken when there's a knock on Jughead's door and all of the serpents are there to try and make him a serpent in FP's absence, which is this thing he has been avoiding all of the first season. So crucial to season one is understanding the serpents, which is the gang that Jughead's dad is the leader of. They kind of throw around the phrases serpent king, serpent queen, <laughs> who knows sometimes the gang is a full-fledged gang sometimes it's an after-school club that's made up of only teens and sometimes they imply that it in fact is a tribe of native americans which we will be discussing 
But the serpents are this underbelly of Riverdale. They've been being paid by Hiram to do dirty work, so including kind of cleaning up Jason's murder, running drugs. Although in later seasons, FP claims that the serpents don't run drugs and that's a different gang. Who knows? They kind of can't make up their mind in the first season about how good or bad the serpents are. Uh, be also because they haven't redeemed FP yet. But the serpents are really important in that Jughead has been trying to not become a serpent. He goes to Riverdale High instead of where all of the serpents go. He lives on the north side as opposed to the south side. He chooses to be homeless rather than be with his dad, who is the Serpent King. And for most of the season, he's living with Archie, and Archie's father is supposed to take him in. He's trying to become a registered foster parent when it turns out he had a DUI in the past. So, unfortunately, Jughead gets sent off to a foster family. Mm -hmm. He decides instead of living with them, he's going to live in his father's trailer park while his father is in jail, who, because of all of these things he was involved with, with Jason's murder. Yeah. And to complicate the, the daddy issues of this episode, the end of season one is Archie meeting his dad and pops, our beloved chocolate shop. And all of a sudden, a mugger busts in, shoots Archie's dad, fade to black, end of season one. Great season finale. Because season one is so focused on the comics, but also immediately queering them and immediately making them weird. And gritty. A lot of season one is about seeing the characters in one light and then immediately switching that mm -hmm. and trying to get you to understand the artifice at every level, which is like really fun at points mm -hmm. and at other points confusing and stupid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> one thing I just need to say before we end this uh, episode is that Veronica and Cheryl have a dance battle. <laughs> oh, and Betty and Veronica kiss. One of the ways that they do the subverting the comics thing is also that in the first episode, uh, Veronica and Betty try out for the cheerleading team. They don't do a great job at their tryouts. Cheryl's like, that was boring. And then Veronica's like, just trust me, watch this. And, and then her and Betty kiss. And it was, you know, it's shot, it's like swirling around them, you know, whatever. It's supposed to be hot. But also, like, in what world would that get you on a cheerleading team? And then Cheryl goes... Check your sell-by date, ladies. Faux lesbian kissing hasn't been taboo since 1994. Two... So, as I just said, this... I feel like they really are immediately queering Riverdale. Mm -hmm. And these two moments happen in the first episode. Betty and Veronica kiss. Mm -hmm. And Jughead is sitting in Pops. And, our, and he goes in the narration. He was looking for the girl next door. Instead, he found me. Which is beautiful. That's love. Love is love. Love is love. One thing we somehow didn't mention is that the entirety of the show is narrated by Jughead. And in the first episode, what you see at the beginning is that he's typing in a document word for word the narration that he's saying. So, you know, just just a little 
a little breadcrumb of Jughead's omniscient godlike presence. No, again, I feel like it's the Riverdale wants to be everything, where every episode is a chapter mm-hmm. in the book Jughead is writing. Yeah. Question mark? Or is it an issue in the Pop's Chocolate Shop in the Sky? Or is it a movie in Blue Velvet, the knockoff David Lynch uh, blockbuster they create? And these are all great questions that we will get to in future episodes. Hopefully our next episode is going to be... Season two. Season two. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, bye-bye. Bye! Bye! <laughs>